0: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help chem build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camhca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash Canada land to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash Canada Quick note before we start, I am still at work on our Thunder Bay series with Ryan McMahon, and we have a guest host today. And that guest host is one of the most interesting people I know, Sheila Hetty. She is... And her guests today, actually, both have books on New York Magazine's 100 Best Books of the 21st Century So Far list. And uh, what else can I say about Sheila Hetty? She introduced me to my wife.
1: In 2001, Rachel Cusk published A Life's Work, the controversial memoir which detailed her experience of becoming a mother and dealing with a newborn. It was a work of literary criticism, a polemic, and was one of the most divisive feminist books of the last two decades. The reviews were alternately admiring and excoriating. If everyone were to read this book, one fairly mild review said, the propagation of the human race would virtually cease, which would be a shame. Cusk was subject to many personal attacks in Britain, often from female readers, saying that she was an unfit mother, was damaging her children, that she didn't deserve to be a mother, that there was something wrong with her psyche, simply because she had expressed the difficulties and ambivalences of new motherhood. But interestingly, despite these brutal personal attacks, Rachel's book inspired so many other female writers to write about their experiences of maternity in an honest way. I, for one, would not have written my book, Motherhood, without her courageous example. Over the years, I've had the pleasure of spending time with Rachel at residencies, on stage, over dinners. I've met her grown children, who, contrary to all predictions of damage to their psyches as a result of being written about, are two of the most impressive, funny, strong, and self-aware young women I've ever met. Rachel's 2012 nonfiction work, Aftermath, told the story of her divorce. And it was her last attempt to deal with her life in a memoiristic way. In interviews, she called the form a dead end since, like a life's work, it led readers and critics to contemplate and criticize her as a woman, instead of her books as aesthetic objects. Her three most recent novels, Outline, Transit, and Kudos, form a loose trilogy and are widely recognized as representing a quantum leap forward for the contemporary novel. The New Yorker published a profile last year entitled, Rachel Cusk Gut Renovates the Novel. Her work always seems to come out of a contemplation of exactly where she finds herself in life, turning the most commonplace experiences like becoming a mother, divorce, the midlife crisis into the material of art. I'm so excited to be speaking with Rachel, calling in from her home in the UK, about Canadian literary culture, middle age, receiving criticism, and how she moved away from the memoir form and reimagined the novel.
0: Jesse here again to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Brendan Wheaton, Dave Curaluda, Elizabeth Gabriel, Lauren Wright, Brad Clark, Franziska Glenn, Jacqueline Spears, and Jesse Robertson. My name is Jesse and I'm a historical consultant based in Victoria. I support Canada Land because I believe that intelligent media criticism is one of our best defenses against the partisan attacks on media that have become so abundant. This episode is brought to you by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, Cam H. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day to day helping people, that's what Cam H does. They do it on the ground when people need help and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash to help CAMH Help As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand.
1: Hi, Rachel. Hi, Sheila. So, Rachel, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today, because our podcast kind of coincidentally is being published on the day of the um, Giller Prize shortlist is you were uh, shortlisted for twice last year and in 2014, and you traveled around the country, in, uh, traveled around Canada with other Canadian writers and read their books. And I just want to start off by asking you if you came away um, with any impressions of Canadian readers, Canadian writers, if there is such a thing. You um, You live in London, but you're Canadian, so there's sort of an outside perspective you have. Did you come away with anything? Oh,
2: a lot. (laughs) There's a lot in there. I mean, I guess what I felt sort of conclusively was that despite having a Canadian passport, uh, I would never be accepted as Canadian. And I think that comes from something that I was sort of curious about, um, which may actually be an aspect of Canadian identity that, that I'm sort of not familiar with, but that I've just noticed in this context, um, which is a, a not realising how powerful you are. <laughs> um, so, so there seemed to be... What, I mean, what I've really encountered in writers and in readers was a feeling of Canadian literature as somehow endangered or... A, a sort of minority th- that needed to be sort of defended and protected. And, and uh, for me, you know, one of the strange things, you know, Canadian identity is probably the most embryonic of my identities because, I mean, I was born there and, and spent early childhood there, but I don't really remember it. Um, and I, I have this passport um, that has always seemed to me a passport that has something to do with writing and women's writing because the women writers who shaped me partly were Canadian and so (laughs) I've always seen it as a a place of incredible influence and power, Um, I mean it's literature Uh, and yet what I found when I was there was was almost the opposite um, sensibility so so I, I didn't kind of work that out really.
1: That's interesting. I mean, you published a life's work um, in 2001. And that was not only a female subject, but a female form. And, and I have a question for you about that. Because you here, let me read this to you. This is this is something that you wrote in a narrative of your own literary trajectory. You said, I began to work, um, additionally, in autobiography, when the formal problems of the novel and representing female experience began to become more apparent to me. What does that mean, the formal problems of the novel in representing female experience? What are those formal problems? Why could the traditional novel not represent female (laughs) experience? What did you see? Uh,
2: Because I felt that female experience needed to be directly owned. Um, It needed to be an an autobiographical eye um, that, that in its most constricting and oppressive moments um the moral psychological and artistic problem of of stepping outside the self stepping outside I for the reader um, it, it was a place where you lost the relationship to the truth of your own experiences and and I mean just you know taking motherhood as an example um you know how I wrote a life's work was by having a child and then by having another child and it was only when I started having another child that I remembered what having a child had been like so and and it was only sort of a year later but it astonished me that that the memory um, and the language the the ability to describe those experiences melts away um so quickly and and and, and so I knew I had to write it down. And, and, well, how was I going to do that as a novel? You know, that that would have completely betrayed the basis on which I was remembering. Um, and I didn't particularly want to write, you know, a book about me uh, and about my baby. Or, and indeed, I didn't. I wrote a book about one baby through another baby. And I think novels are made very differently from that.
1: Right. Novels are made um, with more of a remove? Well, I guess you you... Build
2: a a novel. Um, you have
1: to build it like a building,
2: so it stand. You know, stays standing um, when you're not in it. And the memoir is a much more. Um, it's a different kind of contrivance, um, but it has to be in you. So you you are the building, if you see what I mean. And so you use yourself as the building, and then other people can come and be in you for a bit. I mean, it's not to say that that I haven't. Read um, c- compelling material in novels that crosses over into you know um, a lot of it weirdly written by men <laughs> like D.H. Lawrence, you know, describing sex or childbirth. Um, but something about the mental state of the woman having the experience uh, to me is captured in memoir because the point about these experiences is is that you feel that you are the only person who has ever experienced you know, childbirth or, or it's completely impossible to be universal in that moment or even to feel that this is a shared <laughs> cultural or, or gender experience. Um, and, and it seems to me that, that the memoir is sort of the only... Um, I mean, I wish there'd been another form, but it seemed to me that that was the only one. But yeah, it entails a sacrifice of yourself.
1: Yeah. And then it comes with a complication if you are the building, as you put it, because then when you're interviewed, um, it's not about the form. No, it, yeah, It's not yeah. A, an aesthetic interview. It, it's about you as a person. And, and, mm. and that comes with its own problems. I was listening when I was doing research for this interview to um, Mark Lawson talking to you on the BBC. And I was appalled at how much of the interview involved him asking you to account for your choice to write about being a mother in light of the effect it might have on your children. So you were asked to defend your books as a mother, um, as opposed to talk about them as an artist. And I wonder how much that repeated experience, which I assume it was repeated, um, led to you basically abandoning this memoir form in your last three books. Mm -hmm.
2: What I saw was that the form malfunctioned. Um, it was too easy for it to be read literally. And very much the easiest thing to do is is to use a person as a scapegoat, which is something that happens, you know, in ordinary life. And it also <laughs> happened to my book. Um, it was very easy for the very ambivalence that I describe in life's work to prove itself by... I suppose, alerting certain readers to the presence of what I was saying in themselves and to disown it, to repudiate it by saying, well, she feels that, there must be something wrong with her because I don't feel that. Um, And that, as I say, that's the malfunctioning of the memoir form. Um, So I I couldn't seem to get rid of that uh Even in aftermath aftermath was even worse you know i I', I really struggled <laughs> to create more sort of objectivity and universality to to really really limit the places where you know that literalism could could sort of break through and and uh, it couldn 't be done
1: well, do you think that part of the um sort of what compounds the literal reading is the fact of the author having to appear like in an interview like this, for instance, that one draws attention to oneself as a writer in the public sphere. And that if you were able to withdraw, then you might be able to write in that fashion.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think that that my withdrawal from these things, um, (laughs) <laughs> will probably uh, be complete when I have ceased to write anything. <laughs> I imagine those, or, or when I die. I, I think those two things will probably happen at about the same time. You know, I I started out as a writer um, pretty young. I mean, I think I was, I don't know, 26 or something when my first book was published and it won a prize and I, I, I lambed the slaughter. You know, I did everything everybody asked me to and I was very, very, very exposed and I've been trying and trying and trying to to sort of free myself on, you know, from those things. And it's a slow, I don't seem to be being terribly good at it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's complicated, because you Yeah, you are asked to do these things. And I, I kind of actually, um, I wouldn't mind asking you to read from this passage in kudos because this latest book of yours is so much about these things that the author is asked to do it's the work of being an author apart from writing you know it's it's a whole professionalism um, and it's so dreary and uh, would you read from that 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 part that I
2: yeah, do you want out? me to start? She was a tiny, yeah, why sinewy not? woman, or further down. So
1: okay. this, is from your, uh, this is from the book Kudos, which you just published this past year, 2018.
2: She was a tiny, sinewy woman with a childlike body and a large, bony, sagacious face in which the big, heavy-lidded eyes had an almost reptilian patience, occasionally slowly blinking. She had attended my event this afternoon, she added, and had been struck, as she often was, by the inferiority of these occasions to the work that was their subject, which seemed to be circled with increasing aimlessness and never penetrated. We get to walk in the grounds, she said, but we never enter the building. The purpose of festivals like this one had become less and less clear to her, despite the fact that she was on its board of directors, while the personal value of books had, for her at least, increased. Yet she had the sense that the attempt to make a public concern out of a private pastime reading and writing, was spawning a literature of its own, in that many of the writers invited here excelled at public appearances while producing work she found frankly mediocre. In the case of such people, she said, there are only the grounds. The building isn't there, or if it is, it's a temporary structure that will be swept away by the next storm. But she recognised, she said, that her age might have something to do with this jaded perspective. Increasingly she found herself turning away from the contemporary, back towards the landmarks of literary history. Lately, she had been re-reading Maupassant and was finding it as fresh and as charming as on the day it had been written. Meanwhile, the unstoppable juggernaut of commercial literary success pressed on, though she had the sense that the marriage between the two principles, commerce and literature, was not in the best of health. A small adjustment in public tastes, she said, a thoughtless decision to spend one's money on something else, and the whole thing the global enterprise of fiction publishing and its affiliated industries could be gone in an instant, leaving the small rock of authentic literature where it always was.
1: Thank you. I love that passage. Um, and I think it perfectly illustrates the disjunction between art itself and everything, this whole edifice around it that is, you know, capitalism and selling books and publishing and awards and all this other kind of thing that the authors compelled to take part in. Um one thing that I'm curious about with that passage uh, is, you know, just for our listeners, like your last three books all have this quality of people speaking to the narrator who doesn't really reveal herself. She just hears and witnesses. She's like a recording device. And you um, What's been said in, you know, The Nation and other places is that you have sort of inverted autofiction, which, you know, which is a term for the fiction that uses details of the author's life and the author's persona. You've inverted it because there isn't your life in it. It's sort of the life of those um, that you or your narrator encounters. But with a passage like that, I wonder, do the thoughts that the narrator Faye hears do they come from you know in a in a sort of documentary nonfictiony journalistic way? Do they come from interactions that you've had in the world? Are they your own feelings and thoughts put it into the? bodies of these other people do they come from your imagination like what is the alchemy that creates these stories that the other people tell they I'm surprised to hear you asking me that question
2: Sheila because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you yourself know the answer <laughs> <laughs> well I know um, the answer from for my books but not for yours yeah um I think what I was looking for in writing these books was um a uh, a sound frequency, uh, a a note um, where, because really it's sort of the idea of um, narrative uh, and how it's the way that people see their lives. Um, You know, the, the tiny child goes to school on day one and comes home and... The parent says, "What was your day at school like?" And they tell the story, and and if someone laughs at a particular point, they accentuate that the next time they tell it. So, I mean, I think even a small child does that. Um, so, I I thought that that actually some of the um, freedom that I was looking for, um, freedom from form, really, um, and from particularly the burdensomeness of the pretend. Ignorance of of the author, the author pretending that they don't know <laughs> what is in their book, um, that actually using people's native ability in talk to to uh, write narrative, essentially, um, as I say, a, a frequency, <laughs> and I hear it in people. So I mean, to answer your question, you know, I do. I'm very aware when when these. Passages of life occur when people are able to utter themselves um, it's something that I really notice uh, when someone becomes immersed in their own talk and they they access a, a an ability that is a narrative ability um, So that particular moment, I'm very attuned to. And, and, you know, there's lots of things that people say that are of no use to me at all.
1: This kind of listening that you're engaging in, was that the way that you listened before you wrote in this style? Or did writing this way create in you a desire to listen to the world and to take in the world in this way?
2: I would just really notice this, that, that, you know, with some people, they would describe something and you absolutely can't see what it is they're trying to describe. And other people... Can they, they can, you know, find the salient details. And, um, you know, I really wanted to write a literature that was free of dread and free of suspense um, and that also didn't sprawl so much. So passing as much of this burdensome material through humans, um, so it was a sort of, I guess, I just re- turned inside out what I sort of already knew and what I'd been doing before. So that's sort of how I got there.
1: So. Yeah, and the and the people that speak, I mean, they have characteristics and they're storytellers, but um, they're not characters in the laborious, heavy sense of... You've seen this man before. Now here he is again in literature. You've seen him a hundred times in literature. These are people telling stories for themselves, and and I'm I'm curious to talk to you about character a little bit because you know even though you're in some sense taking away so many of the um, writerly tools you know which which are used to create character, these people are so specific and so precise and so well drawn, and I um, I get the sense that um, part of this new way of writing character comes out of maybe a feeling that we aren't as distinct from each other as we once were, um, that this sort of Victorian idea of like human types and, um, you know, the people have such very different souls that that's kind of outdated and that that we're all kind of the same as each other now. I mean, even the language that the characters tell their stories in has a kind of uniformity. Mm.
2: The sort of mark of the good novelist is is his or her character changes over the course of the novel, you know that John will be one thing and then will be shown to have changed you know by the end and i I don't see it that way i don't really believe in character um I believe in in moments of truth, and that a moment of truth is even if it's just literally a momentary Emergence, like someone getting out of the sea and standing on the rock for a minute and sort of looking around, for whatever reason, they can see where they are. They can see themselves and they can see what's around them and, and they can say what it is. Um, and, you know, the, the times that one can do that in one's life, you know, it's, it's probably not that many. It's Well, it's certainly not all the time anyway. Um, so I, I suppose I felt that there was the possibility of iconic... Utterance, um, if I can call it that, um, and something that that if you live in a particular way uh, becomes more and more available to you as you get older. I guess.
1: What's that particular way? <laughs>
2: the right way. <laughs> <laughs> the true way.
1: I mean the the other the other element that I would put in there in terms of you know the ingredients of of a truthful moment seems to be a kind of recognition of a certain darkness or a certain um, life as an accumulation of losses, um, an accumulation of recognition of one's failure, um, sort of a, a realization that that we actually aren't people who live by any kind of moral code as much as we might wish to. Um, do you think that one element of this truth that you've tried to capture on the page is this I wouldn't even say a nihilism, but just kind of like a futility at, at what humans are able to manifest in their own lives or um, among the people they love or, you know, in relation to their, themselves.
2: Um, I'm surprised to hear you say that. It's definitely not what I um, would have thought about my worldview. um th- th- I think my writing is, is a positive view of life. That's how I feel.
1: Uh, What's the positive view of life? I mean, I do find it entertaining. I like when writers show the darkness. I find it such a relief. I find it such good company. You know, I would, I would never feel comforted by the, by the rosy view of, of life and humans and human relationships. I think mm-hmm. there's, there's no solace there. But I mean, I'm curious what this positive view of life you think. Um,
2: well, because I think that writing for me is a... Um, essentially that is positivity it as a created object is positivity and um so I think there's a point at which the things that you're saying in your beautiful writing (laughs) cancel out your beautiful writing and I, I don't feel that I'm doing that um I feel that this question of truth and and particularly of female truth um is one that I've really 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 lived in and travelled in and suffered from and stayed with and you know what a, a woman feels when she has a six month old baby and is having to tell everyone that she's really enjoying it <laughs> compared to you know what she might feel 20 years later about the deceptions that she went in for or didn't go in for um, you know I, th- I think people accumulate some significant moral burdens um, in their lives and and the people that interest me i guess are the ones that when they have a moment of of elevation and they get a bit of a view of themselves are are able to see that and are interested in finding out what the truth is and i think it's really people wanting to know the difference between what they truly think (laughs) and what appears to be i suppose i don't see it as as negative i see it as as honest
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose I think I see that there is a darkness in how far away we are from truth, how all the forces in life sort of conspire to keep one away from it. As you said, there may be only a few moments in life where one actually can stand in it. So to me, that is dark, you know, to me, and and just the fact that you know one makes an aesthetic object for the world that does represent a certain amount of hope, but it's hope in an otherwise you know very <laughs> bleak landscape where one has to lie and is being lied to and and nobody is telling the truth and um, well and
2: I guess that's why I feel um, that my books are sort of the opposite. you know I am trying to capture people in in these moments of truth telling um or to to i suppose describe the parts of of life where that that might Become a possibility, so maybe <laughs> maybe I'm in fact more of an optimist than than the average person.
1: Yeah, um, I kind of want to talk a little bit about middle age because I I feel like the the crisis of aftermath, um, your book about divorce and and sort of the crisis of these books is a specifically um, middle aged crisis. You know, it's it comes after decades of um, world building, you know, for the person, you know, making family, um, making career, um, making meaning. And then there's this crisis of what interrupts it. Um, can you continue on with these ideas, uh, you know, through the second half of your life? And I'd like you to read a quote from Outline, um, if you have it in front of you. Mm-hmm. Okay. I felt that I could swim
2: for miles out into the ocean. A desire for freedom, an impulse to move, tugged at me as though it were a thread fastened to my chest. It was an impulse I knew well, and I had learned that it was not the summons from a larger world I used to believe it to be. It was simply a desire to escape from what I had. The thread led nowhere, except into ever-expanding wastes of anonymity. I could swim out into the sea as far as I liked, if what I wanted was to drown. Yet this impulse, this desire to be free, was still compelling to me, I still somehow believed in it, despite having proved that everything about it was illusory.
1: Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I love this passage. And I. again, I think that this is something that represents like the wisdom of midlife, like the idea that there is some future freedom is an illusion, but yet one still feels the tug towards it. Can you talk a little bit about this?
2: Well, I mean, I think part of what the passage is saying is, is that knowledge is... Um, not helpful, (laughs) that you can know something and still be unfree. You can know that you suffer in particular ways or that you are weak in particular ways or make choices that are not the right ones. You can know it and and you can still do it. And, you know, that's the reckoning in middle age. Um, It is, in fact, a a tragic (laughs) uh, sense that you have been formed by things and they were not real. Uh, They were the products of your upbringing or um, conditioning of of gender or of social class. And I think there's a certain point where it's like a stage set beginning to (laughs) to sort of crumble and you start to see it wobbling. And in the world that I'm describing, um, that's a realisation that, is arrived at only after the world has really sort of beaten you up a bit, and you know that such things as divorce happen and and um, family breakdown and. Or but even it also loss seems of kind of
1: relaxing if all those things are falling. I mean, it seems terrifying, but also relaxing and relieving if all those rules, let's say, one's unconsciously following, you know, start to become. Um, you start to see them, they become conscious and then they disappear.
2: Like if you're kind of left alone in this. It's very probably a character trait of the person who... Uh, might have these realisations that they've also been absolutely conditioned to believe that the worst thing to do is to waste time. So <laughs> the thought that you've wasted, you know, your entire life uh, at the service yeah. of things that didn't really exist, you know, in, in, you know as the, the sort of psycho terminology goes, you know, in a prison where the door in fact was open um, and you've sat there all this time. Um, so a lot of what I'm writing in, in these books is very much uh, concerned with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like the engines of ambition, whatever propels people, you know, who are ambitious, that that's a thing of youth, perhaps because there's so much illusion involved and what the outcome of, of all that ambition can be. Or, you know, whether there's actually somewhere you imagine you're going to, you know, there's something to be said for the opposite, which I think is what your books show, which is like, in fact, the absence of self, the the witnessing rather than doing, you know. um, Yeah, and I mean,
2: one of the crucial parts of the book that, you know, I'm not sure whether it's an element that people particularly notice, but um, the children of the the narrator um, are, they appear in order to demonstrate uh, that this narrator is making a concerted attempt to break the chain as it as it's called you know that this freedom when it comes is nothing if if it leaves people unfree behind you and you know the books end very much with that very clear idea of her children also being free um not just her
1: yeah um one of the things you're talking about being free of is gender, I would say. How do you imagine that's going to inflect the kind of writing you do next to if they are coming from like a more genderless place where up till now, so much of what you have been trying to struggle free of are these illusions um or are these deceptions you know that are connected to femaleness or femininity
2: mm. no i mean its is a huge question and and um you know i've been asked occasionally lately when i do the thing that i should be freeing myself from and go and sit on the stage at the whatever festival and um you know one is expected to have a view about you know the the me too movement for instance or um issues of sort of feminism and sexual politics today and i find i have nothing to say um i felt i lived as a woman, you know, I lived through womanhood in, in the most sort of basic and indeed arduous <laughs> ways. And now I, I don't feel gendered. And um, I'm interested in knowing what is after gender. I suppose I see it as a, a blankness of spirituality um, ahead of me and I, I'm interested to know what's in it uh, so yeah that's
1: where I'm well, going. Maybe you should leave the bloody island and come to the yeah, land yeah, yeah. of <laughs> trees and expanse <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: I know, I know I, I would have enjoyed being shortlisted for the giller again
1: <laughs> Thanks so much Rachel Thank you Sheehan, it's lovely to talk to you Yeah, l- lovely to talk to you That was your Canada Land. You can find me online at www.sheelaheddy.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com backslash Land. This episode was produced by Ali Graham. Canada Land's managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon.